Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello. In this Policy Forum pod, it's London calling, as well as the rest of the United Kingdom, as we ask, should I stay or should I go, and give a distinctly Asia-Pacific take on Brexit, and whether the UK will stay within the European Union. We'll look at how it came about and why it matters. There have been, uh, for a long time in Britain, really deep concerns about the relationship between Britain and the EU, about how well Britain does out of it. We'll hear about why it's important to the Asia-Pacific region. Yeah, it's certainly going to be a, 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 a game-changer. This is not just some referendum. And we'll take a look at what the consequences might be of a Leave vote. Britain could find itself isolated not just by the European Union, but by the rest of the world. Stay with us. Hello, I'm Martin Pierce, and welcome to the latest Policy Forum pod. On June 23rd, Britain will vote in a referendum about whether the country will stay or leave the European Union. Uh, The campaign has been a heated and divisive one in the community, with strong views on both sides in the country, and even international heavyweights like the IMF and Barack Obama weighing in. So which way will it go? What are the consequences of it? And does it even matter to the Asia-Pacific region? In this Policy Forum pod, three experts are going to give us their take on those questions. There are some fascinating insights and well worth a listen. Before we get started, though, a quick reminder that this podcast is brought to you by policyforum.net. We really hope you're enjoying these podcasts. We'd love to hear your feedback. Uh, Perhaps you want to tell us what you like or don't. Maybe you want to suggest a topic for us or you just have some thoughts you want to share. You can contact us on email. We are team at policyforum.net via our social media channels, at Apps Policy Forum on Twitter, or Asia Pacific Policy Society on Facebook, or you can tweet at me, I am The Shepherd's Dog on Twitter. If you can, please take a moment to give us a review on iTunes, because doing that is a big help for us in uh, getting the word out about the podcast. Now let's get into the issue at hand. First, let's take a look at what's behind the push to leave the European Union, what happens if the Brexit vote is successful, and why all of this is important to the Asia-Pacific region. And helping me unpick that is Professor Jürgen Brümer. Jürgen is the Dean of the Law School at Murdoch University in Western Australia. He's an expert on the European Union and international trade law. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome him to the pod. Jürgen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. There's an argument put forward by the Brexiteers that EU law is sort of encroaching and intruding into every corner's of, of people's lives, a bit of an overreach. Is there any truth in any of that? Whether there is truth in any of that depends on what your starting point for looking at the matter is. Um, the powers of the European Union, that which supposedly encroaches into people's lives, is regulated in the treaties. The treaties have not substantially changed in the past 20 years in terms of power allocation to Brussels. Um, so in that sense, 
one would have to say there hasn't been any encroachment um, beyond uh, what was already envisaged uh, 20 years ago. Uh, so nothing has changed substantively and substantially on that, on that particular front. What might have changed, or not what might have changed, what is at issue here is in essence what has been is and will be at issue in every federally structured entity, whether it is the United States, whether it's Germany, whether it's Canada, and that is the enduring question of what ought to be dealt with on a more central higher level and what ought to be dealt with on a, a more subsidiary lower level of government. That, that is a fundamental issue, problem, conflict, in the best sense of the word, that every federally organized system has. The European Union has it, and that is something that um, uh, has to be balanced out as you go forward, as it has happened in the United States for 200 years, as it has happened, as I said, in any federally organized system. And another argument put forward by the Brexiteers is talking about sort of taking back control from Brussels uh, and a push to increase democracy. How do you see those types of arguments? As always, uh, you know, there are sensitive people uh, leading these discussions. So I'm loath to say that it is, uh, you know, it's all nonsensical. It is, of course, not nonsensical. However, it is, as far as I'm concerned, to some degree, at least besides the point, for a couple of reasons. A, any type of multi-layer collaboration, any type of international collaboration, if that international collab collaboration is to lead to decision-making of any sort, will inherently mean that the layer where those decisions were made beforehand will lose power. Uh, so whatever powers the European Union has, and if it is only one, it means in so far as the European Union has that power, London, Berlin, Paris, Rome, and the others do not have that power anymore. In that sense, this argument brought forward by the Brexiteers is undisputable. Uh, and hence, it leads back to the first question that you've asked, how many of these powers ought to be taken care of on the central level in Brussels, in our case, and how many should be left on a subsidiary level in the member states? And that question is an important one and needs, needs to be discussed and continually discussed because that is a core question of any multi-level federally organized system. The other side of that question is, is there really an alternative of actually regaining control? Uh, and that, of course, has to do with the consequences of a Brexit. Uh, so what would happen if uh, Brexit was successful and uh, the UK actually got out? Uh, one option that has been discussed is they would remain within the common market, for example, by joining the European uh, economic area like Norway. Well, then they wouldn't gain any control back because most of the legislation, most of that encroachment, most of that taking back control plays in the common market area. Free movement of people, free movement of goods, free movement of services, free movement of capital. And they would just have to swallow those rules as they come from Brussels. Only difference is they wouldn't have any say. The UK wouldn't have any say in making these rules, and that would really be a shame, but that, that would then be a consequence. Or they would get out of everything and, for example, sign on to other trade deals like uh, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, TTIP, 
But if you follow the debate on TTIP, which is it's almost ironic, those who are opposed to TTIP, what do they complain about? The loss of control. Uh, that's the major part in the TTIP debate is that all of a sudden the Americans will dictate their, their, their standards and we won't be able to protect us against hormone beef and, and chlorine chickens and, and all of these things. Um, so the, the major concern, the major concern on TTIP and other free trade agreements, if you follow the debate in the U.S., uh, other free trade agreements, is that a loss of control of decision making at home because areas are quarantined off to the free trade agreement, which is the very purpose of free trade agreements um, in order to have freer trade. So there is, it's, it's um, in the question here really is, is it realistic to assume that we can live in our little national backyards and kind of like pretend that we control the issues? Is, is that a realistic assumption? And I would put to you, it is a highly unrealistic, almost a naive assumption. In the event that the Brexit vote is successful on the 23rd of June, what will actually happen? Uh, what will happen in Europe? Well, that is uh, anybody's guess. Um, I, th I think, um, I think, given the overall sentiment, uh, such a move certainly could lead to an existential crisis of the European Union. I mean, we do not only have uh, a Brexit. The the benefit is that what the UK brings to the table is that these questions are kind of like openly discussed. But it's not only the UK. If you look at what's happening in France and the boost that Marine Le Pen would probably or at least could probably get out of such a no vote, um, you know, I don't even want to think about that. Um, in the United States, we have this guy, Donald Trump, sitting who is uh, talking all kinds of nonsense. None of it is really inspiring hope, you know, building walls. Brexit is a more intellectual, intellectual way of saying, let's build walls. Marine Le Pen is a more kind of like diffuse way of let's build walls. I just don't think that walls are the answer to the questions of the next decades. Collaboration is the answer. Turning towards our region, does what's happening in the UK and in Europe actually matter to the Asia Pacific? Should we be watching this? Um, I think uh, we should very closely be watching this for, for a number of reasons. I mean, the obvious one is the economic uh, fallout of that. Um, uh, but if we leave, move away from the, from the economic side of things, I think there's also a broader foreign policy agenda there to be had. And this is, I think, another, another big cost and, and, and disadvantage if Brexit went ahead. The Europeans have a role to play on the world stage. Uh, we have so much to offer. Um, why is the European Union project so important? Well, it is, it is the most successful rule of law experiment the world has ever undertaken. Because the Union rests entirely and exclusively on the rule of law. And I think many would agree that what we need in the world is more rule of law. If, if that fails, something that Europe has to offer to the world will have failed. 
part two, we also have something to offer in the, in, in the power balance in the world. But we can only offer what we have to offer, and that is uh, emphasizing, at least to some degree, diplomacy over military force. Very many ties to very many countries in the world. You know, the French history, the UK history, with, uh, with all those ties in, 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 into Asian and African countries and, uh, and beyond um, that have built over decades where Europe could really throw their weight behind um, and for the better. Uh, all of these things will, will probably fall away if the continent resorts back to playing Norway for everyone or, you know, little, uh, you know, Iceland for everyone, Switzerland for everyone. Uh, their individual little game because Europe will not, will not, can only have a voice in the world if they, if they are together and, and, and join in, in the choir. Um, I think the UK, in the UK case, uh, that influence you know, which is enormous, would be lost for the EU because, hence, the EU, Brexit, you know, EU is a big loser. It's not just the UK. Uh, but the UK would then basically, what would the alternative be? Uh, a very even closer alignment uh, to the United States. Uh, are there any uh, specific lessons for Asia-Pacific out of this whole uh, debate and the issues that are playing out in Europe. I mean, I'm thinking in particular of ASEAN, which is an institution which has lots of questions around its its future. Is there anything that our region can learn from what's happening mm. there? Well, I would, again, this is, a, uh, uh, of course, a question of degree. I mean, the principal answer is, of course, yes. The, uh, the more detailed answer, I think, is um, the European Integration Project was a very special project. It was based in, uh, uh, you know, on a group of nations that had very close historical cultural ties. So, you know, very similar religion, very similar governmental systems, uh, but certainly a much more homogeneous group than the ASEAN group is, who, you know, share no, almost no historical experience. The ASEAN group is, is, merely a regional grouping, full stop. The European Union is not just a regional grouping. Um, it is, you know, transcends the region as such into cultural and, and other things, political things. So the integration of the ASEAN countries would, you know, even if the Praxis vote is defeated and the European Union, you know, comes together and we create the United States of Europe, whatever it is, the ASEAN integration project is a different one. And nobody could, you know, sensibly now say, uh, you know, the time is ripe to have these types of aspirations. So the ASEAN one would be for the time being, uh, which is a long time, by and large economical integration, but even the economical uh, cooperation on a much, much lower scale that, you know, at present is below free trade scale in many, in many areas as far as ASEAN as an actor is concerned. And then some very, very flat and, and, and broad political things uh, underpinning it, uh, you know, basically a very low common denominator to go forward on. In the broader picture, the breakdown of this integration project in Europe, 
will of course not support any other integration projects, right? That the, it, it will take further sale out of any wins for deepening collaboration across national borders. It's, it's, not, it's not going to help uh, down here either. And hence, for those who think that collaboration on that level is, is a good thing, that uh, will be a loss. And we have China sitting here who are not known to be very integrative. Um, and, uh, you know, so, you know, there are issues, there are strategic issues here as to how to form and shape the political landscape here in our region where we have this humongous player sitting there and then a number of small and medium-sized players trying to, 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 to grapple with that, with that balance of power. Finally, Jürgen, to put you on the spot, all of the polls point towards the fact that it's a fairly even split between those who want to remain in the EU and those who want to leave. What's your best guess about which way it's actually going to go? I can't voice that strongly enough. Personally, I hope Brexit loses. Huh? And the more they would, the higher the margin, the better as far as I'm concerned. That, of course, is um, entirely the reason why I'm so concerned. My team tends to lose. <laughs> That's the way in sports. You know, if um, you know, I stay out of buying stocks and stuff because if I went, went in to buy a stock and you by some way know about it, the best thing you could do is sell it because you'd know it'd be going down because just for because I bought it. So what really concerns me is because I am so passionately on the on that side. Chances of the other side have just now increased. So who knows how it might play out on the on June twenty third? Yeah, it's certainly going to be a, 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 a game changer. This is not just some referendum. Uh, this is uh, not underestimatable political consequence. I think. Jürgen Bromer, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Very interesting stuff and a huge thank you to Jürgen for his time there. You can read more about his views on Brexit with a fascinating piece he's written, which you can find at policyforum.net. And don't forget you can keep up to date with all of our podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or at Policy Forum. Go to policyforum.net forward slash subscribe and we'll let you know each time there's a new pod available. There's plenty more to come, so stick with us. Coming up soon, we're going to be getting an on-the-ground report from the UK and finding out what a Brexit vote might mean for Britain's relationships with the rest of the world, including with the Asia-Pacific region. So Brexit is clearly a divisive and difficult issue both in the UK and in Europe, which sort of begs the question of why it's happening in the first place. To give us some insight into that and what it might mean for the rest of Europe, I spoke earlier to Clem McIntyre. Clem is a professor in the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Adelaide. He's an expert on European politics and British political history. In a fairly wide-ranging interview, we talked about why Prime Minister David Cameron called the referendum in the first place, what the rest of Europe makes of it, and what the Asia-Pacific might learn from what's actually happening in the EU. Here's what he had to say. Clem McIntyre, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Clem, we've seen everyone from the IMF to uh, Barack Obama encouraging Britain to stay in the EU, but still the Brexiters seem to be pulling ahead. How has this happened and why does there appear to be such strong anti-EU feeling in the country? Yes, I think that is a good summary. There is clearly a, a consensus amongst some of the international commentators and financial heavies that Britain remaining inside the EU is better 
for them and better for the EU. Um, and indeed, if you listen to some of the comments coming out of Germany overnight, better for Western civilization. Uh, but nonetheless, there have been uh, for a long time in Britain really deep concerns about the relationship between Britain and the EU, about how well Britain does out of it, uh, and the British uh, Parliament and laws and so on are subjugated to European requirements. And in the perception of the those campaigning for leave, uh, this is happening in a in a way that is not accountable and not democratic. That the uh, that the British people don't have enough say in the makeup uh, of the, uh, the 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 key bureaucracy inside Brussels, and so there's that sense of um, uh, of democratic deficit almost uh, and alienation from uh, the EU. And this is happening at a time when. Britain is experiencing huge numbers of uh, of migrants arriving and at least half of those are coming from EU countries and uh, there is free movement of labour inside the EU. So there is nothing that can be done uh, at the borders to stop those people and that's one of the key arguments that the Leave campaigners have been making, that it would mean Britain able to take responsibility or take control of many of the um, uh, key domestic policy areas uh, that they feel have been lost to to Europe. Now, the referendum was called by uh, Prime Minister David Cameron. I guess the big question for you know someone watching from the outside is, why did he do it, particularly when it seems so divisive for the country and even within his own party? I think it's a pretty simple answer, that uh, civil war was um, not far from the surface in the Conservative Party. Those who want to leave inside the Conservative Party are very, very strong and passionate about it. They see it as their, you know, their, the, the driving force of their political life. And this was a Prime Minister who was in coalition with the Liberals from 2010 through to the election of 2015, who was trying to buy uh, peace and quiet and a degree of unity in the Conservative Party in the run-up to that election. And one means of doing that was to put, it, put Europe at... Uh, Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Uh, out of the out of the equation, if you like, by pushing a decision forward to the following year. So ahead of the last election, Cameron was quite clear: if re-elected uh, and um, uh, and as prime minister with with the authority to do it, he would call a referendum. Um, now that kept the Eurosceptics quiet inside the Conservative Party in the run up to the election. I think it's also fair to say that all of the polls in um, April, May last year, were showing that there would be a hung parliament, that the Conservatives would not have an absolute majority. So it may well be that Cameron was giving that promise, uh, confident that if he was Prime Minister, uh, or anticipating that if he was Prime Minister, it was more likely to be in a coalition with another party, whether it be the, uh, the Liberal Democrats or uh, any other grouping, and that he would be able, in a sense, to... Uh, avoid the commitment to the referendum by simply saying, well, we don't have the numbers on our own uh, to get that legislation through. 
Um, of course, at the election, the Conservatives did prevail. They did win an absolute majority. Uh, and uh, Cameron was left, in a sense, having to live with the promise that he'd made. Uh, he'd, he'd offered up a bit of a hostage to fortune. And uh, I think that's, that's largely why we've got the referendum uh, now. What does the rest of Europe make of this whole Brexit argument question? I think there's not really a single answer to that. I think it's it's clear that the bureaucracy and that the elite, the hierarchy inside the EU is worried. Uh, they see uh, it as a complication uh, and a, and it would force a rebalancing, if you like. That there's a there's a sort of a tripartite balance at the at the big table in the EU between Germany, France, and the UK. And if the UK steps away from that, that's going to change that relationship uh, inside the EU. Uh, and so uh, you're seeing political leaders coming out and speaking and financial leaders coming out and speaking against uh, leaving um, with quite some passion at the moment. But equally, just as in the UK, there's been the rise of parties like UKIP and, and the Eurosceptics, in a lot of other countries in Europe, there are uh, growing political parties who are very hostile to the EU, who want to renegotiate the terms of the EU. Uh, in the Netherlands, in France, in Austria, in Germany, in Italy. Um, if the British vote to leave, that will um, add fuel to the fire uh, inside the domestic politics of some of those countries. Beyond encouraging a potential renegotiation of some of the terms if the uh, Brexiters succeed, could a leave vote also spark a wave of other exits from the EU? Yes, probably not immediately, but uh, I think it would be disruptive. It would bring into question the whole sense of the EU as a as a political uh, endeavour. Um, I think many people saw the merits of the EU as an economic union, um, a single market where where something could be bought and sold without uh, any restriction from one side of Europe to the other. Um, many saw the emergence of the EU from the old European coal and steel community back in the early 1950s into the to the European economic community um, as a means of providing a, a greater degree of harmony in the post-war years, uh, of providing equal access to the resources of starting off with coal and steel but then other goods, uh, to stop some of those um, internecine European conflicts. So remember, there'd been three wars inside uh uh, the, the previous 70-odd years before the, um, the the Second World War. And so as a means of trying to build European harmony, the, the EU is something that had been celebrated. But it's probably grown into much more than that. And the more it turns into a political union, the more it is leaving, I think, the voters behind who feel disaffected uh, and left out. There's not the same sense of accountability and the same direct relationship between the voters and the elected officials and, and some of the unelected appointed officials inside the EU as there is at the local level. And so there's not the same uh, sense of connection. Most people still think of themselves as of a nationality first and, and European second. Uh, I think that if Britain goes, then it really does um, under, underline how difficult it is to build those cross-national, intranational, uh, supranational agencies um, that, uh, that, that many saw as a sort of uh, a great opportunity uh, perhaps 30, 40 years ago. Uh, I think we're seeing greater levels of, of um, domestic disaffection um, and uh, Britain leaving will simply add to that, uh, make, it a, make, make the EU, a, in a sense, a less compelling 
um, force. Moving beyond Europe, are there any lessons from all of this for the Asia-Pacific region? Well, I think the general lesson for me is the difficulty of bringing together a range of disparate countries. As I say, you know, if it's, if it's effectively through trade and not much more, then I think that can work very well. And we saw the EU relatively successful in, those, uh, in that regard. But when you try and bind the economies through a single currency and when you try and increasingly talk about a single political union, uh, then I think you're seeing signs in that where it begins to sort of transcend national interest. So um, we're a long way from anything like uh, the EU inside um, Asia where we are. But I think that uh, there are lessons there for political leaders who are trying to move to that um, more cosmopolitan free trade uh, world that that uh, you can't leave behind the domestic population, that there are anxieties there uh, that are not far below the surface. And when uh, unemployment starts growing, when there's pressures on um, on services that, that citizens expect, then the pushback politically is is significant. So I, I just don't think we're going to see any anything like the sort of endeavour towards uh, what the EU has been in another part of the world. But there's a lesson there, I think, that, um, you know, we need to... I hasten cautiously in relation to those agreements. Clem McIntyre, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks to Clem for his time there. So we've looked at why it's happening, we've looked at why this matters to the Asia-Pacific, and we've looked at what some of the consequences might be, whichever way the vote goes on June the 23rd. Now let's turn our attention to what's actually happening on the ground. Which way is the vote likely to go? And will a vote to leave, as European Council President Donald Trusk warned, threaten Western political civilization? Joining me from the UK, where he's visiting on a work trip, is Professor Lawrence Pratchett. Lawrence is an expert in democracy and governance, and he's the Dean of the Faculty of Government and Law at the University of Canberra. Lawrence, thanks so much for joining Policy Forum Pod. Thank you, Martin. Lawrence, you're in the UK at the moment. Can you give us a sense of what's happening on the ground? Are people more interested in the EU Brexit vote or the results at Euro 2016? Um, there is absolutely no question that everybody is talking about Brexit. And um, even Euro, two, Euro 2016 is an excuse to talk about Brexit and the extent to which um, Britons, uh, particularly the English, want to be part of the European Union and the extent to which they want to be out of it. Um, I've been here for a few days now. Um, I was struck how the celebrations for the Queen's birthday um, which were much bigger than they normally are here in England, um, were uh, really turned into a demonstration of national pride, of patriotism, and were hijacked by much of the right-wing media as being another symbol of Brexit and, how, and why Britain should be proud to be on, uh, on its own, should be able to take control of its own future, and so on. That's the arguments that they're running. So... Uh... Can you give a sense of which way it looks like it's likely to go? I'm at, I'm at a major um, trade conference at the moment, which is run by the British government or funded by the British government. And quite clearly, um, all of the industrial uh, big players, um, all the political elite, um, with some obvious exceptions in the Conservative Party, um, are lined up behind a Remain vote. They all, they, there, are so, there is so much logic in the reasons why Britain should stay within the European Union. Um, 
So uh, if you talk to the people who are in the know, they all think that Britain, that the vote will be won in terms of Remain and that uh, there, there are just so many logical arguments as to why economically it makes sense to be in the EU, why politically it makes sense to be in the EU as well. But when I talk to ordinary people, and I, um, because I'm interested in this, I have spent a lot of time talking to people in taxis, in pubs, um, and just talking to my family and everything as well, the sense of um, dismay at the European Union and the opportunity that, it, that the Brexit vote offers people to um, supposedly state their case as being British and being separate from Europe um, is, is really strong. And I, um, as somebody who supports the idea of Britain being in the European Union, I'm fearful that the vote will actually go um, in favour of Brexit. So supposing the vote does go in favour of Brexit, what are going to be the consequences of that, both the immediate and the longer term consequences? So those who are in favour of Brexit think that Britain can um, develop its own strong economic links with the rest of the world. They particularly believe that the um, Commonwealth nations of the former British Empire will want to trade with Britain and will be a good focus for that re- for that relationship. Um, there's also just a belief that Britain can set its own economic policies and its own political policies and do, do really be really this sort of independent nation that it used to be supposedly um, playing a big part in the world. That's what the Brexit people think. Um, But I think the the majority of people who are really paying attention to the debate recognise the challenges for Britain should they be outside of the European Union. It's quite clear that the European Union um, sees this as a major moment in its history, um, that there will be, if Britain exits, then other nations will seek to renegotiate their relationship with the European Union. It's also possible that parts of other countries will seek to exit independently, Catalonia, um, the Basque country, uh, possibly the Bretons in France and so on, will all see this as an opportunity to, to strike their own independence. So the European Union, I think, will work hard to ensure that Britain can't trade with it and is left very isolated and ostracised by the other European nations in order to demonstrate to the rest of the world that leaving the European Union isn't a good idea. So that's the first big consequence, I think, of Brexit. Um, the, the other consequence is that, and I think this pl- applies particularly to um, those Commonwealth countries that Britain would want to trade with, but also to all, all countries in the sort of Asia-Pacific re- region, that um, the European Union um, is, is a big market. Britain is not a big market. It's a reasonably sized market, 65 million people. It's not a big market. Um, the reason that many countries trade with Britain is to get access to the European Union countries, 350 million people, and um, they will no longer have access to that. So I think that um, Britain will have to strike bilateral trade relations with a whole range of countries, um, many of whom won't see the advantages of having strong bilateral trade arrangements, and therefore um, Britain could find itself isolated not just by the European Union, but by the rest of the world um, as it seeks to strike those bilateral trade arrangements. Um, so if I, if I was um, a country doing negotiations with Britain, I'd be thinking, well, I've got you over a barrel here. I'm going to make sure that I ex- extract the best opportunity for my, for my nation in this trade agreement.
the other thing that people are talking about is the extent to which Scotland will seek to negotiate to stay in the European Union in the face of a Brexit. So um, even worse for, for Britain is that England and Wales will be isolated and Northern Ireland will be isolated from the European Union, but Scotland will remain as a trade centre. So we could start to see the fracturing of both the European Union and the fracturing of the UK. I mean, European Council President Donald Trusk warned this week that a vote to leave the EU could threaten, quote-unquote, Western political civilization. Is that overstating things? Um, I think it's possibly overstating things because I think that um, the political civilization that they're referring to there... Um, won't, won't be undermined by it, but the particular political institutions that currently um, have created the the sort of greater Europe position um, will certainly be um, undermined. I think that it's a big threat to the European Union generally. Um, there are, of course, other European bodies like the Council of Europe and so on that also provide a significant amount of political stability. And then the Council of Europe, for example, includes every European country other than Belarusia. So it includes Russia and everything as well. So it provides political stability that, um, at, a, at, a, at a fairly high level, I suppose, not at a detailed level. What about in terms of the relationship with Asia-Pacific? Does it matter what's happening in Britain and what might happen in Europe to our region? Uh, it, it obviously matters because I think it will have uh, Britain exiting the European Union will have big economic consequences around the world. I think there's no question about that. It's a major, major economy, even if it's not the biggest economy. And um, it will it will start to undermine the European economy more generally. So I think there's a, there's a, there's sort of the straightforward economic impacts that are, you know, it'll be a big shock to the global economy. And we will see the you know the pound sterling probably decline over the next year or so, um, and that will have an impact on trade and so on. But I think that for Asia Pacific countries specifically, um, trying to trade with Europe, um, there's a fundamental change in the way in which some of them will have to operate. Those that are operating already in Germany or Spain or France um, won't see a big difference, but those that have Britain as a major entry point into the European Union will have to reconsider how they operate, whether they move their operations and their contacts into the European Union, um, whether 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 they seek to negotiate a new arrangement with Britain and so on. Those are all things that I'll have to think about. Obviously, in the Asia-Pacific region, there's lots of discussion around the future of uh, ASEAN, for example. Are there lessons for Asia-Pacific about from what is happening in Europe? Oh, I mean, definitely. And the I think ASEAN is much more like the European community than uh, the European economic community than it is the European Union. So, um, and I think that the thing that has fundamentally undone the European Union in the Brexit debate has been the sort of um, move from what was originally a economic trade area which I think ASEAN really is, into a much more homogenised political um, arena in which there was, there's been a big debate about whether there should be a federal Europe and so on, and the extent to which Europe really is already federalised in terms of its the way it works. And at the heart of that then has been a democratic deficit in which um, most countries, not just Britain, most countries feel they don't exercise enough influence and have enough understanding of what's happening at the centre of the European Union.
So the lessons for ASEAN, um, I think, are to think very carefully about the extent to which they want to move beyond a relatively loose trading um, agreement that is basically about economic development across the whole of the, the ASEAN region um, to something that is more political union. Because I think what's happened in Britain, even when it was just an economic um, agreement, there were there were disputes over the extent to which Brussels um, was seeking to control Britain. But since it's been since the political union that really emerged after Maastricht, um, the sense in which British identity has been eroded among some people. I mean, the, these are the arguments that people make. There's a real sense that Europe is seeking to erode the identity of Britain. The um, extent to which freedom of movement of people has meant that um, British values are being undermined by uh, European immigrants to Britain and so on. These are all the sort of nationalistic um, and, to be honest, honest and quite frank, um, xenophobic uh, reactions that people in Britain have had. I, get, I think that the challenge for ASEAN is to ensure that it protects the nationalism of each country um, and doesn't seek to undermine that in the in the broader project that it's trying to develop. I think that's really where the European Union's gone wrong. It's sort it has sought to create a European identity when quite often the countries within it don't want a European identity. They see themselves as firstly. Um, a national identity um, with a loose coupling to Europe. Finally, Lawrence, we've had everyone from uh, Barack Obama to the IMF coming out and encouraging Britain to stay within the EU, whereas on the other side, you've got Michael Gove, you've got Boris Johnson. At the end of the day, what's your feeling about which way voters will actually go on the June 23rd poll? So... um, what you have in effect, what you've just described, I think, is a sense of establish- the establishment having a very clear position um, versus a few populist uh, politicians. Um, the challenge in the current political environment, um, and I think we can go straight to the US and look at the extent to which Donald Trump has been very successful in that populist campaign as well, is that the populists are raising... Um, arguments which, um, whilst they're not sensible arguments, are very hard for um, the establishment figures to refute because they, they, um, it engages them and just gives them more fuel, basically, when, when, when uh, they raise the challenges. So um, I, as I said at the start of this conversation, am very concerned that um, at the end of the 23rd of June, we will actually find that there's been a vote. It won't be it won't be a big margin, but there could well be a vote in favour of Brexit. Um, I would prefer it not to be the case, but I do at the moment um, think if I had to put my money on one side of the vote, it would be that it's going to go for Brexit. It'll be very interesting to see which way the vote goes. Lawrence, thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much, Martin. Fascinating insights, and I thank Lawrence for making the time and sharing his expertise. So we've looked at how the Brexit vote came about, which way it might go, what the consequences could be for either outcome, and why it matters to the Asia-Pacific region. I hope you've enjoyed the expert insights as much as I have. Policy Forum Pod is a fairly new undertaking for us, so we're very keen to get your views and feedback. Let us know what you think on Twitter, where we are at Apps Policy Forum, 
or Facebook where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. And please, if you've enjoyed the podcast, let others know by leaving us a brief review on iTunes. It'll be a big help to us in getting the word out. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more insights and analysis, but in the meantime, you can keep up to date with Asia and the Pacific's policy challenges at policyforum.net. Thanks for joining me and cheerio for now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.